Paul was an old general, scarred and weary when he wrote the pastoral epistles. He had two young aides who were in the thick of the fight, and in these personal letters Paul gave them what they needed to win. The enemy in the pastoral epistles is Satan. Our study leader Dave Wordson exposes his target and his technique. Our country right now, if you haven't noticed, is involved in a great big conflict, a big debate. And the uh, Iraq Commission report has just come out, and a, a group of men and women have gotten together, and, and they just gave their Iraq report. And now the country divides. I hear the military guys are going to present their report. We're all trying to figure out what we're going to do. Based on your political standing, uh, there's a great divide in our country. You know, was it the right thing to invade Iraq? And and for me, it becomes very personal. My nephew, you know, is sitting in my, at Thanksgiving time, is sitting in my study or sitting in our living room, and he's been over to Iraq for two stints of duty there. And I ask him, well, what do you think? And, you know, he kind of shakes his head, and he's saying, you know, it's really a hard fight. And one of the things that we've discovered is that you can't take 1776, uh, the 13 colonies of the United States, overlay it on Iraq and the Middle East, and have it fit together. And so there's a big debate about that. Getting democracy started throughout the Middle East isn't just having a dream of doing that. Uh, there's a lot of things that enter into that. What I want you to really think about today is that, like, as a young person, you might be really challenged. You know, that's going to be a good fight, and, and I really want to get involved in that. In fact, my nephew Ross, you know, he was 9-11, really touched his life, and it needed to. It touched all of our life. And one of the reasons he volunteered to go over to Iraq was because he wanted to protect us. And I praise the Lord that he did that. But now that he's back from tours of duty, he wonders, was it really, really a good fight? And we could debate that back and forth. And one of the things I want all the young people to realize is that in this life, that you're going to be challenged to get involved in big causes. And for example, years and years ago, uh, if you were a Southerner here in Texas, you'd be challenged during the, before the, the war between the states broke out. You'd have to make a decision. Will I join that fight? And up where I was raised, uh, you'd have to decide to join the fight on the other, way, other side. And 600,000 men died. And, Mar and Lincoln, when he gave his very powerful address near the end of the war... He talked about the fact that, uh, that God, that both sides prayed to God and both sides looked to God for victory. And, and maybe the 650,000 that died in that battle was the payment for the horrors of slavery. But he talked about the ambiguity of the fights that we get into. And then one of the things I want you to realize as a young person is that you have to decide is what fight are you going to enter into and is it a good fight? And I want you to know that I believe that the Bible really teaches strongly that we have the right to defend our family, that police officers and soldiers that fight uh, in order to defend us, that's something that as a church family we need to really honor. But I want to talk to you today about a fight that will never disillusion you. I don't want to speak to you about the war in Iraq. But I want to talk to you about a fight that I know is good. And if you're young, I want to challenge you that, to think about a real war. We've been learning in the Scripture, and turn back to Genesis chapter 3, verse 15 again, that all of history is a great conflict. Genesis chapter 3, verse 15 began the story of the Bible with the serpent attacking human beings. And he deceived them. He deceived Eve. 
And then Adam willingly chose to enter in to that rebellion against God. And God comes to Adam and Eve, brings them out of hiding, and he curses them and says just exactly what he said would happen, thou shalt surely die in the day that you disobey me. And in Genesis 3.15, though, however, God laid out, as he talked about the curse against the serpent, he laid out what was going to be the history for the rest of the human race. And I want you to see yourself in the midst of this history. The Old Testament lived out this history. Look what it says. The Lord said, I will put enmity between you, the serpent, and the woman, and between the, your seed and the woman's seed, between your offspring and her offspring. He, the great Messiah that will come, remember we've learned, is going to crush your head, only you're going to strike that great Messiah in the heel. We trace, and as we've been studying his story, we trace how all through the Old Testament you had that conflict raging. Remember I told you about the little babies in Egypt of Israel seeking to be pharaohs, trying to destroy them. Why? Because the serpent's breathing through Pharaoh to destroy the seed of the woman. He wants to snuff out the Jewish people, wants to destroy the coming Messiah. We have jumping way ahead in the period of Esther. Some of you have seen the film about Hadassah, the Israelite queen that became the queen of Persia. What was going on? Haman's trying to destroy the promised child. He wants to wipe out the Jewish race. Some of you have gone to see the nativity. And one of the major things in the nativity, they talk about wicked King Herod that wants to snuff out the baby boys in Bethlehem. Why? Because a great war is raging between the serpent, the adversary, Satan, who's God's arch enemy, and those that seek to follow this Messiah. At the cross of Calvary, Satan struck at the Son of God. And he injected the Son of God with the venom, the most powerful venom that he has, the venom of death. And Jesus breathed at his last and he died. It's a great twist in the story. It looks like we've been coming all the way through and again and again and again and again the Messiah is protected. Again and again the Messiah's line is protected. All the way through Jesus' earthly life, the Lord protects him. And then suddenly on the cross of Calvary, it looks like the protection is taken off. And it looks like the dragon is won and he's been able to breathe out his fire. And yet on the third day, the tomb is empty and the serpent's power is broken. And we would expect that the next thing in God's program is for Jesus to reveal himself as a Messiah, to totally put the serpent in the lake of fire, and we would all live happily ever after. That's the way I expect this story to go. But there's another twist in this story. Because God's not just going to save the Jewish people, and he's not just going to deal with the Jews nationally, but at Pentecost, he brings his spirit upon the beginning of an entirely new group that's going to combine Jews and Gentiles, and the church is born. We have the Old Testament people of God, then we move into the New Testament at Pentecost. God begins to work with people just like you. And I want every one of you to know that you're part of this very, very important group. It's called the Bride of Christ. It's called the Body of Christ. It's called the Assembly of Those that have worshipped and accepted Jesus as their Savior. Now, the battle that we're talking about in Genesis 3.15 is still raging. The battle is attacking. And as you read the pastoral epistles that we're going to look at today, First and Second Timothy and Titus, 
You have the Apostle Paul, who is a general that's fought in the battle. He's not just someone like what struck me about the Iraq Commission. It's hardly any of them really military people. And so now we're waiting for the report from the military guys. Well, one of the things that I want is I want to get information from people that have been on the ground. I want to talk to Marines that have gone house to house. I want to talk to officers that have actually traveled throughout Iraq. Don't you? I mean, those are the people that really know what's going on. I want to talk to people that have lived, like my son, for example, in Islamic lands, that speak the languages, that know what the people really believe. That's the kind of information we need. And brothers and sisters, what I want you to know is you open up the pastoral epistles, you've got word from a man who's been on the ground. The Apostle Paul has devoted his whole life to going from one city to the next talking with people, giving birth to churches. He goes into synagogues, and when he's done, the synagogue has some Jewish people that believe Jesus is the Messiah. He goes into an agora, like the ancient equivalent of a big mall. He talks to Gentile people. When the Apostle Paul is done, there are Gentile believers that have accepted Jesus as their Savior, and a new church is born. That's what happened here in Midlothian. Mary and I just came down here. There's already the work of the Spirit through Ed and Coralie Murray. The Holy Spirit is beginning to move among some of you. And Dan's dad was born again. And Mary Jane was born again. And then Dan, just, Dan and Jeannie, just before I came down here, Dan watched the Billy Graham crusade. And he heard the gospel in the midst of a really bad uh, family situation. And the Lord saved Dan. That's the way our church was born. Kim was a young man. It's hard to believe, but he was a young man back then. And he was being involved with a a family called the Crabs. And he realized that at BMA, he learned about the gospel. And he realized that in his church family, he really wasn't being taught the word of God like that. So he joined with us. And that's how the church, the Melothian Bible Church, was born. That's what's produced. I want you to know that's what's produced all the Iwana, all the Promised Land, all the Ed and Coralie going to the mission field. Other churches were born from that. A group from this church family went to Waxahachie. The elders decided, let's send about 50 of our people over there. Jimmy and Marilyn Matthews, they went with that original group. Jerry and Vera Wofford. We sent Dave Lowry, one of our pastors, and Waxahachie Bible Church was born. You're part of this great movement of the Spirit of God. And what I want you to know is that it's a fight. What you need to realize is that the Lord has not invited you just to sit in a hospital, just to be a patient. He's invited you to be a soldier. As American believers, you're often treated like your patients, and we're always going to take care of you. Well, this morning... You know, I want you to know that I am a pastor teacher, and I do want to take care of you, and we will visit you in the hospital. Lane Mershimer, one of our pastors, is especially gifted, has a tremendous burden to have that kind of a ministry, and how I love that gift that he has. But Lane and I want you to know that we want you not just to be patients in the hospital, but we want you to be Marines on a spiritual battlefield. Amen? And I'm calling, I'm really serious, I've been involved in this fight And I've been involved in this fight since I was five years of age when I received Jesus. My daddy lived this fight, and he challenged me to have this fight and to believe in it. And now I've been involved in this for all these years, and I want you to know that I've never had a time where there was a commission that got together and said, is this a good fight? And maybe it was was a waste of time. 
Maybe it was a mistake. And that's what I want to challenge you to because I don't want you to live your life and then get at the end and realize, man, I gave myself to the wrong fight. The good fight that we're a part of is to counter the evil one as he attacks the body of Christ. The Apostle Paul is running to two young men, Timothy and Titus. They're two young pastors. Paul calls both of them his children in the faith, my son in the faith. Look at 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 2. Timothy is a young man, and by the way, he's not a real powerful man. He's not a man that would be like Tony Evans that just spreads those broad soldier shoulders and just pours out the gospel and it just flows out of him and it's very bold. Timothy was kind of a shy guy. And so some of you are not bombastic. Some of you are shy. Some of you are timid. Some of you get afraid. I want to encourage you. Paul, the great apostle Paul, chose Timothy to be one of the major young men that passes on his legacy to the next generation. It says to Timothy, verse three, uh, verse 2 of chapter 1 of 1 Timothy, to Timothy, my true son in the faith. If you turn over to Titus, chapter 1, Titus is another young man. Look what it says in the introduction. In chapter, uh, Titus chapter 1, verse 4, to Titus, my true son in our common faith. The Apostle Paul is addressing these letters, both 1 Timothy and Titus, to two young men that he was their spiritual daddy. And I want you to think about that kind of relationship. I want to ask all of you men, all of you men in the room, do you have some young men that are your spiritual sons? Daddies, first of all, your sons should be your physical sons. That's where it all begins. So if you're a daddy here, the war that you're called to is to fight for the spiritual condition of your sons and your daughters. Ladies, I want to include you as well because as you develop the pastoral epistles, you're going to find out that it, it says that you older ladies need to be an example to the younger ladies and you need to war for their souls. So older ladies, I want to ask you, if you're a mom, do you have young daughters and sons in the faith? That's why our whole church is set up the way it is, because it needs to spread out from your own individual family. There's a whole lot of children that don't have believing parents. So where are they going to find out about the truth of the gospel? Where are they going to find out about our common faith, the, the death and resurrection of Jesus? It needs to be from you. And what I want to call you to is if you're sitting here going, man, I don't think my life's adding up. I don't think my life is counting for much then this morning you need to decide my life is going to add up if I have spiritual kids. If I have kids that I've led to Jesus and then I help them to grow, will that be easy? No. And I want you to realize that it's going to be a war. It's going to be a war with Satan. And you're going to be fighting against him. And that's what the book of, of 1 Timothy and Titus and 2 Timothy is about. So one of the very first things I want to challenge you to, our church family according to the pastoral epistles, needs to challenge especially men. Paul has a major appeal to men for you to have spiritual sons. That's really the stress. And I don't want to leave the girls behind, but one of the great needs in our society is for there to be daddies that really get serious about passing on the spiritual legacy of Christ to the next generation. Say, Dave, how do I do that? 
The pastoral epistles is a great place to start because the Apostle Paul will tell you how to do that. Now, as you have these spiritual sons and daughters, what's going to happen? Well, I want to tell you right off the bat is that if you get involved with the Lord Jesus, you try to win others to Christ, it's going to be a tremendous fight. It's going to be a tremendous struggle. And so if, you're, if you want to go on a Hawaiian vacation, if you want to just enjoy Miami Beach, don't join the struggle of faith. In fact, I, one of the things that I, when I teach at Dallas Seminary, I teach young pastors, they say, we want you to give uh, a talk to young pastoral majors just before they leave. You know what the name of my talk is? It's like heaven and it's like hell. That's my talk. And that's the truth. As I work with you, it's like heaven. I see glimpses of grace, and you see glimpses of grace in me. There's great victories. It's also really discouraging. It's like war. It's a real battle. You say, why? Because there's an enemy. In the pastoral epistles, and what I want you to do is you're reading the epistles of the New Testament. As we follow his story, what we want to look for is those subtle mentionings of the work of the serpent. And so as you're reading through the pastoral epistles, you'll find out that there's some false teachers. For example, if you look at 1 Timothy chapter 1, you'll find out that the Apostle Paul warns against some false teachers that have infiltrated the church. As you move down here, look at the end of chapter 1, verse 20 of 1 Timothy. Look at it. Paul says, Among them are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I've handed over to Satan that they might be taught not to blaspheme. Now, this is what he's saying. What he's saying is that there are two men in the church of Ephesus, because Timothy is in the church of Ephesus. Paul's running to him. There are two men, Alexander and Hymenaeus. And in the church, they are drawing people away from a true commitment to the doctrine as revealed by Paul about the cross and about the resurrection. Just a minute, I'm going to talk to you about some of the things that Alexander and Hymenaeus were teaching. What Paul is telling Timothy is that the church needs to put them outside the church. They need to discipline them. They need to not let that false teaching continue. What will happen? This is the place where you're protected. It's like being a soldier in a battlefield with your unit around you. If we put you outside the protecting the church, it means that you're on the battlefield with Satan by yourself. And that's very serious. You need to realize how serious that is. Because we need one another, and we need the teaching of God's word. We need the authority of the body of Christ to keep us safe from the wild of the evil one. And I want you to see that, that Paul believed with all of his heart that if you put Alexander and Hymenaeus outside the safety of a local church family and have them just out there, then Satan will deal with them. Notice he also says that ultimately not even Satan can get outside the sovereign plan that God had for them. And that God will use Satan to discipline these two men that are probably his children, probably the Lord's children, but they've fallen into false doctrine. You say, Dave, what are some of the things that Satan's going to try to teach us about? I want you to see that in the pastoral epistles, the attack is not from without. As we've been coming through like the book of Philippians, for example, the attack in Philippians was from the Roman Empire, from Nero. Nero was ACDC, had sex with men and women. 
He was a very cruel man. He actually put Christians, when Rome got burned and he blamed the Christians for that, he actually poured kerosene and tar over Christians, put them on crosses and lit them and used them to light the streets of Rome. And so he was a vicious, cruel man. So if you think some of the cruelty that's happening today is new, it isn't. And so in Philippians, Paul is getting ready to face that kind of a great opposition from without, persecution from the Roman Empire. But in the pastoral epistles, the attack of the evil one is much more subtle. It comes from within, and it comes with false teaching. And let me just give you kind of an overview of the kind of false teaching that the Apostle Paul warned Timothy about and warned Titus about, and I'll try to give you a little feel for how we get attacked with that today. I'm just going to give you a summary of this, and I'll be able to show you and give you some ideas about how it relates to our present day. Paul warns Timothy against those that are making all kinds of speculations about myths or fables and genealogies. Specifically, what happened in, in Jewish circles, they would take those genealogies from the Old Testament, like in the early chapters of Genesis, chapter 5, for example, you have this long genealogy. They'll take some of the obscure names that are there, and then they'll, they'll tell all kinds of stories about those people. For example, like there's not that much uh, about Enoch in the Bible. All there is about Enoch is that he walked with God, and God walked with him, and he was not because God took him. And so what you'll have in Jewish speculation is all kinds of stories that develop about Enoch. In our Christian tradition, there's not a whole lot of stories about Jesus when he was a little boy. You jump all the way from when he was dedicated to when he was 12 years of age when, the, when he came to the temple and was sitting with the doctor of the law. So you can read literature that developed in the second century that tells all kinds of stories about Jesus when he was a little boy. And stories, for example, where he zapped some of his friends because they're being mean to him. And stories that talk about him taking ducks that are wooden ducks and making them come alive. That's what started coming in is the myth. You say, well, Dave, how does that relate to us? The Da Vinci Code is just a new modern version of following a myth. And the idea is, is that there's another there's another accepted doctrine. Jesus was actually married. Jesus actually fathered children. Those are stories. There's fables. The Da Vinci Code by Brown is a myth. And all you need to do is go to any credible historian and you'll find out that's true. But in our culture, in the high school, for example, I've had many of you say that you've been on vacation, talk to people that are supposedly learned and they read the Da Vinci Code, and they think it's the latest thing in New Testament scholarship. You can even go to Princeton University, and a girl named Elaine Pagels will teach you, very brilliant, brilliant lady, and she will teach you that there were many different doctrines. There wasn't like what the Apostle Paul says in First Timothy. What she would teach you is that the pastoral epistles is a bunch of male chauvinists, that are beginning to exert their power over the church. And if you really want to find freedom, you need to go back and read all these other, uh, like the Nag Hammadi documents, which talk about Gnosticism. And there's many other ways to get to God other than just Jesus alone. And so you're going to have to make a decision. What I'm showing you is that Satan hasn't changed his attack. 
And what I want you to understand is that there's a great temptation as you grow older to not build your life in the teaching of this apostolic book and to study it carefully. And what you do is you get all enamored with all this information. You go away to university and say, well, man, I didn't hear about that at the Bible church. I didn't hear about the Gospel of Thomas at the Bible church. Well, what I want you to know is you want to know about the Gospel of Thomas? Daryl Bach, one of my associates, Daryl's one of the world's leading authorities on that kind of writing. We've got another doctor at Dallas Seminary, that that's his whole life work is to know about the church fathers. So don't you go following a false myth thinking, well, I didn't learn about that in my upbringing. Ask. When you're tempted to doubt, ask. That's what we're here to do, to help you find the truth. I want you all to know something as a pastor teacher. I'm not trying to hide anything, and I'm not afraid of any research you want to do and study you want to do because I'm totally confident that when all the truth is in, it'll all be about Jesus because he's the truth and the life. Real important, I want you to understand that because this isn't just an ancient speculation. This is very modern and it pulls people into false doctrine. There's another false thing. I'll give you another example, uh, a false use of the law. If you turn to 1 Timothy chapter 1, The Apostle Paul says in verse 8, we know that the law is good if one uses it properly. We often know that the law is not made for the righteous, but for lawbreakers and rebels. Now, here is the true use of the Mosaic law. If you're a policeman, you need to listen to this really carefully because your job depends upon this kind of using the law to protect us from those that are unrighteous. It says, it says the lawbreakers and rebels. Anarchists, in other words, those that rebel against legitimate authority. The ungodly and the sinful, the unholy, the irreligious. Now, here it gives you specifically those who murder. The, the command against murder is still in place. Specifically, those who kill their mothers and their fathers. Rebellious kids. I know situations this week where policemen have had to go into a home and a teenager is cursing out their parents, and that happens every day of the week. Don't do that. That's part of this ungodly society. That's part of Satan working. And so as parents, like, we need to be really strong on our authority. And Satan's working in our homes, trying to get a teenager as they move toward adulthood, where the Lord wants them to be able to fly on their own, and we need to help them to do that, Satan wants to work really hard to get them to say, I could just kill you, Mom and Dad. And in our culture, we have some expressions where that actually does happen. And what I want you to know is the Bible talks about that. It's very important to understand that. That is the attack of the evil one in your home. And the law... It's given to us for us to know that's not going to cut it, that that's not just maladjustment, that is really evil. He goes on and says, he talked about for adulterers, that's those that are involved in heterosexual immorality. It talks about perverts. The word literally there is homosexuals. That's literally what it says. It says men that have sex with men is the word. That's the literal word that's used there. And you live in a society where a good thing for me to tell you, is that that is like your color of your skin. The law of God says, no, it isn't. The law of God says that your family needs to be protected. A man and a woman 
that generated a baby. And they protect the baby because it's part of their flesh. And that's the foundation of a whole culture. Homosexuality was rampant in the ancient world. Socrates, who wrote the Symposium on Love, Plato wrote what Socrates said. Socrates, the, the most beautiful poetry in, Greek, in the Greek language and the most insightful about love, is written by Socrates about homosexual love. So the idea that this is a new thing is not new. And I want you to know that the Jewish Old Testament and the New Testament stood strongly against that. Why? Because it destroys homes. Because it destroys. Like as a man, I needed to grow up and I go through a period as a man where I'm developing sexually and I don't know my identity and then suddenly I can shave and I need to shave and suddenly I get strong enough that I want to get away from mom and dad and I fall in love with a young woman and then I want to protect her. And when Mary had a baby... And for nine months she was pregnant. She can't just go out and work as hard as I do during that time because I wasn't carrying the baby. And when the baby comes, the baby needs to be cared for. And the baby takes a lot more work after it was in Mary's womb than it took when it comes out. Then it really takes a lot of work. And Janae's still taking a lot of work. Just kidding. (laughs) Brothers and sisters, the pastoral epistles is calling us back to some real fundamentals. You live in a society that, that are airheads. They've lost their feet on the ground. And we don't even understand what a moral law is anymore. And I want you to understand that the Bible is talking about home life. It's talking about husbands that are committed to their wives and committed to their kids And at Midlothian Bible Church, I want to call us to that's the good fight. That's what we need to fight for. The Apostle Paul is saying that the law is for for those that are slave traders, liars, and perjurers. Those who lie. Those who do illicit things in business. And then he says, and things like that. Anything that conforms to anything that's against the moral standard that God has given to us. The next section, though, the Apostle Paul highlights the good news. How do we counter? I've given you several other things about the false teaching, talk about the great and the value of the family, talk about arrogance and pride, which is a key thing. False teachers will always be into money, and you're going to have a denial of the bodily resurrection. They're also going to, they're going to tell you, I want to mention one other thing that's really important. Be careful. It's always false teaching when they start telling you, don't eat this and don't have sex. I want you to remember that. In Paul's warning, it's amazing to me that very early in the second century, there starts to develop in the Christian church a movement where it's wrong for man and woman to commit themselves. There's more holy people that don't have sex and they devote themselves fully to God. And brothers and sisters, based upon the scripture, what I want you to see is that the scripture says, don't forbid marriage. And if you forbid marriage, there will always be great problems that come from that. Because that's the good place that God gave us to live that out. Second of all, the pastoral epistles warn about food. In our church family, 
be careful when you start to be all hyped up about not eating certain kinds of food. I've been doing this a long time. You guys eat all meat, then you eat all bread. Then you eat all vegetables, then you switch back to eating all meat. Don't do that. I watch girls. This is serious. I watch girls ruin their digestive tract forever because they don't eat right. And they want to look like some girl on a strip in Paris where a bunch of homosexual men are saying that, men, that women should look like a string. Now, don't follow that foolishness. This is really serious. Women are dying because of the standards we gave. The Apostle Paul counters this. He says, women, I want you to dress, dress orderly. I want you to dress beautifully. The word for modesty in Greek means to dress very skillfully and orderly. It's not a demeaning word. Modesty is a bad word in our culture. And as a Milothian Bible church, we need to recapture modesty. Ladies, is not a bad word. It is a good word. And I can't recreate the value of modesty in this church family. You ladies are going to need to do it. And you need to not do it prudishly. You need to not do it, well, they didn't do that when I was a kid. You need to get in there and start discipling young ladies, teaching them where real value lies, teaching them where real godliness lies. The Apostle Paul is calling for a church family in the midst of a culture that's totally perverted, where all the things that we're facing were very much accepted. What captured the imagination of the first century world was the power of the Holy Spirit was creating a new people, a different people. And that's what the pastoral epistles are about. The guts of it all, though, the guts of it all is the powerful change that the gospel produces. Turn back to 1 Timothy chapter 1 because Paul, like any good author, really gives you the heartbeat of his into all the pastoral epistles in verse 15. Look what it says. Here's a trustworthy saying. I started out telling you that I'm going to tell you about a good fight that when you live all your life, you won't wake up and have a commission tell you it's not a good fight. You made a mistake. It says, here's a trustworthy saying, and it deserves full acceptance. The Messiah, the Christ, Jesus the Savior, came into the world to save sinners. If you're homosexual, Jesus came to save you. I didn't reject you this morning. I love you. If you're having tendencies that way, you're in the perfect place because we've got a Savior that can deliver you from that. And we don't want you to feel that we're going to reject you or not. We're not going to tell you it's okay. Just like Mary's not going to let me say, well, I've got a heterosexual lust. Mary's not going to let me say, that's fine, Dave. You got me? We all need help. And we're all sinners. It says Jesus came into the world to save sinners. So our message is not that we hate sinners, but we still call sin, sin. That's the purpose of the law. But we never stop with just the law because we have a Savior that came to save sinners. And Paul says, the man who wrote these books, I'm the worst one. For that very reason, Paul says, I was shown mercy. So that in me, the worst of sinners, the Messiah, the Savior Jesus, might display his unlimited patience as an example of those who would believe in him and receive eternal life. 
Now to the king, that's our immortal God. He's eternal. He's immortal. He's invisible. The only God. Be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. I want to close today by having this do. Like in 1 Timothy 2, it says when the church gathered together, he wanted the men to, to pray. And so I'd like us to close today. Often I usually close in prayer, but I'm going to ask several of you men that are daddies in your home. Maybe some of you say, Dave, I've never prayed. Young men included, never prayed in public. The men in the early church, when they gathered together, this is what they did. The men prayed. They stood up and they lifted their hands. So if you want to do that, that's the way, very common in the first century, to lift your hands and pray, and the men prayed. And they prayed for those in authority. I wanted to close this service by praying for our leaders, both Republicans and Democrats, so that we could have peace, so that the gospel can go forth. We need to pray for our families. I just got a voicemail on my phone, and I told you that the battle against the evil one is real. One of my buddies, a man in our church, has been fighting all week long. He's been calling me repeatedly with a buddy of his who was involved in an illicit affair. And it's been going back and forth. I get a call every single day, back and forth. Just at 6.30 this morning, my voicemail went off, and my buddy just told me that his buddy decided last night to move back home. Now, brothers and sisters, that's the war I'm talking about. That's fighting for one another. That guy has spent hours, he's prayed, he's argued, he's volunteered to take for counseling. That's what I want us to capture a glimpse of. That's the incredible thing. So I want several of the men, as we close today, just to stand up and pray for our families. I want to pray like one of the challenges I want to give you today in 1 Timothy 3 says, if anyone aspires to the office of a leadership, I told you last week, brothers and sisters, we need men that covet and are greedy in a holy sense for church leadership. Not to be on the board, not to have authority, but because they really want a shepherd sheep. Because they realize that's the most important thing of all. And that begins with the Holy Spirit speaking in your heart. It says, if anyone desires the office of an overseer, that's a good thing. And men, your culture says the only thing you desire is a good beer and a good cowboy game. Well, I got something a lot better. The greatest thing that I ever did was become an elder in the body of Christ. And that's what the Lord wants some of you to pray about. Maybe the Lord will talk to some of you about saying, it's time for me to grow up, that I'm a man. And I need to get really serious about being an overseer and a servant that passes on the legacy to the next generation. Father, we are so thankful that there were Timothys and Titus in the first century, and there's going to be many Timothy and Tituses, and there's going to be many godly women, both young and old, that are going to continue the great, great teaching of Scripture. And most of all, Lord, you tell us that it's about Jesus that the goal of our faith is love, a love that produces righteousness, a love that produces godliness and patience and the fruit of the Spirit that Paul outlined as the qualities of a mature man and woman. 
I'd ask you, Lord Jesus, that uh, you would help some of my brothers and sisters in the coming days uh, to really ask themselves what they're fighting for in life and what their goal is. And I pray that you would help them to read these precious letters and learn about the fight that the Apostle Paul was able to say at the end of it. I fought the good fight. I have kept the faith. I finished the plan that the Lord Jesus had for me, and therefore there's laid up for me a crown of righteousness that the Lord Jesus has for all those that love the appearing of Jesus. I just ask you, Lord Jesus, that you would help me to be anticipating that glorious appearing of Jesus and to keep enduring and fighting the good fight of faith. And I pray that by the Spirit working through the teaching of your word this morning, that you might raise up uh, both men and women that can be leaders, examples of godliness. I mentioned uh, a fellow that contended for this marriage and how you gave the victory, Lord. I pray that this week, that when many of my brothers and sisters have friends, maybe at work or maybe in their extended families are struggling with immorality and struggling with sin, and I just ask you, Lord, that we would band together and help each other to, to truly see that this is a fight. I'd ask you, Lord Jesus, especially for our teenagers, that were there in a lot of ways they face the brunt of what Satan's trying to do, and he wants to rob their young lives of purity and of godliness and of, of all the good things that you have for them. And I would pray, Lord Jesus, that we would be a church family that would cover them with prayer and really help them in the fight. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.